A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hello and welcome to The Naked Scientists with me, Ginny Smith, and also with Chris Smith. This week, how fears and phobias can pass from a parent to a child in a smell, why first impressions really do count, and also... The physics of being a lead guitarist. We'll find out what they are. Plus, we hear how one of the brightest lights in the universe based in Oxford, is helping scientists to build better jet engines, fight off antibiotic-resistant bacteria, and read the biochemical makeup of long-dead dinosaurs. The Naked Scientists podcast is powered by UKfast.co.uk. Helen of Troy apparently had a face that launched a thousand ships. And scientists say that we form an impression by looking at the face of what someone is like in less than a tenth of a second. But what features do we base these opinions on? By studying thousands of faces and people's reactions to them, scientists at York University have now produced a computer programme that can tell us how another person will respond when they see us, which apparently could come in very handy, I'm told, in job interviews or even on dating websites. Tom Hartley led the research. When people look at a face, they start to form an impression about the person that they're looking at. So they'll first of all be able to judge things like age and sex, maybe more objective features. But also they form an impression about more subjective qualities. So things like whether somebody's approachable or confident, healthy, aggressive. People can guess who's going to win the election based on what their face looks like. Um, another example would be court cases. So there's been some work to show that the result of a court case can be determined by the, the face of the person that they're looking at. So how did you try to approach this? What did you do to try and find out what the key features were that people, when assessing a face, are actually looking for? Well, what we had was a large collection of faces, just ordinary images drawn from the internet. And we looked at all of these images and um, we went through them very carefully and placed 179 points all around the face to sort of form a join-the-dots-like picture that describes the whole face. And then for the same pictures, we also asked judges to look at these pictures and tell us what did they think about the person. So we would say, is this person approachable? Is this person aggressive? And we got 16 different ratings for each one of the thousand faces. And then what we really wanted to do was look at the relationship between the join-the-dots picture of the face on the one hand and the social impressions on the other hand. So to do this, we trained a computer model to guess what somebody would say about the character based only on information about the shape of the face. Um, and we're able to show that just by training the computer, we could get fairly accurate guesses about what people would then, would then say about the person's character. 
And does it work? Could, can you take a, a person standing in front of you and get the computer to make a prediction about what the general public would say about that person? Uh, yes, as far as we can tell, it works. I mean, we know that it will work quite well from this, um, what's called a cross-validation procedure, where we train it on one set of data and then test it on another set. It does seem to work when we try it out on our own pitches, we get ratings that accord with our own subjective judgment. Um, and for future work, obviously, it would be great to demonstrate this by using a whole new set of faces and finding out uh, exactly whether the model's predictions accord with those that we have. Do you think that it would be possible to take this sort of readout and use it to give feedback to a person? Because obviously it's very difficult to change the face you have. People often say, I've got a perfect face for radio. Perhaps we won't go there. But the point is, could I be given some feedback by your system that would help me to adjust the way in which I pull a facial expression or the expression I tend to adopt to encourage me to generate greater sensations of trustworthiness amongst the people I deal with or a better friendly interaction with people, for example. Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, that's one of the most important implications of the work, really. But one of the interesting things about what we found is that many of the features that vary um, and that contribute to our social impressions are features that will not be the same in one image and the next. For example, approachability or trustworthiness being signalled by a warm smile. Well, a warm smile is something that might be there in one photograph and not in another photograph. So, you know, the first step, if you want to appear to be more trustworthy, is to have a photograph with a warm smile on. And the model can tell you exactly which photographs look the warmest, the most approachable, um, which evoke which impressions of dominance, and which evoke impressions of attractiveness. And so you can select images that either maximise all of those things at the same time, which would be fantastic, I guess. Or maybe you can pick images that are right for the particular purpose um, that you have at the moment. So uh, if you were going to submit your picture for an online dating agency, you might be more concerned about appearing to be youthfully attractive. But if you're applying for a job and you're attaching your picture to a CV, maybe dominance and trustworthiness are more important. And so for different situations, you might want to use a different picture to portray a different social impression. And we now have a really good handle on what it is about these images that uh, create those impressions. So we've put this kind of instinctive knowledge onto a more scientific footing. Tom Hartley from the University of York. He published that story this week in the journal PNAS. Uh, it's interesting. I reckon there's probably one or two websites that will, will want to license that, you know, the likes of Facebook and things like that, to say to their users, put your photo in here, we will tell you what our algorithm says about what your face says about you. I, I think that's going to be huge business. Yeah, I can I can definitely see an app that does that. And it would be really useful for anyone on a dating website or, or something like that, just wanting to look appealing and as likeable as possible. It's an interesting point he makes, because I hadn't really considered that, that what we view as attractive about a picture is not going to be a consistent feature from one picture to the next. Mm. So an attractive face isn't always attractive in all settings, is what he's saying, and that you can do more to make yourself appear more attractive or more approachable. Uh, by by adjusting the way that you face the camera or adjusting the lighting. And that's what he's saying professional photographers actually do. And I hadn't really thought of that before, but it's obvious, isn't it? Yeah, and I think a lot of it, though, is about having a genuine smile because I know that I hate pictures of me when I know the picture's being taken because I just I do a weird smile and I don't look right. But if someone catches me actually in the moment smiling, I look so much better. 
On to cannabis now. And new research has shown that long-term marijuana use rewires the brain, making it less sensitive to a feel-good chemical called dopamine and leaving users at risk of becoming depressed and demotivated. Hannah Critchlow spoke with Michael Bloomingfield from Imperial College London. Dopamine is a really interesting chemical in the brain. It does lots and lots of things. One of the things that it does is send a signal within your brain when something exciting potentially is is about to happen, something rewarding. And so it's involved in motivation. Now, we found within cannabis users that there was a correlation, so a relationship between their motivation levels and their dopamine levels. And what we found was that the lower their dopamine levels were, the more unmotivated that they, they felt. So your brain lights up with dopamine and reward when you're feeling things of pleasure and when you're getting keyed up to be motivated with something. And cannabis actually decreases the amount of dopamine that's in your brain. Is that right? What we think's happening is that if you smoke cannabis, that it probably releases a bit of dopamine. And when people smoke lots and lots of cannabis over time, the same with recreational drugs that people can use, the dopamine system can become used to being stimulated. And so it tries to adapt by lowering the amount of dopamine that it makes. And how much cannabis would you have to smoke in order to rewire and alter your dopamine pathways in the brain? In in our study, all of the cannabis users were quite heavy cannabis users. So most cannabis in the UK is sold as an eighth, which is an eighth of an ounce. That's roughly three and a half grams. The cannabis users in our study were smoking a quarter of an ounce of cannabis a week, which, which is quite a lot. So we're talking about, at least from this study, quite heavy use. I think more work needs to be done to answer that question. I think the other really interesting thing is increasingly we're understanding a bit more about the different chemicals in cannabis. So there are, there are up to probably almost 100 different chemicals in cannabis. And depending on the balance between these, um, that they probably have different effects on the brain. So there's one called THC, which is the main one, and another one called CBD. What we think is really important is it's the balance between these as to the effects that they have on the brain in the short term, but also the long term. So bottom line then, in your studies at least, regular cannabis use, so at least a few times a week, can actually decrease or desensitise your brain's reward pathways so that you might get feelings of apathy and lack of motivation. Certainly that's what we believe based on the findings that we have. I think the story is beginning to fit together. Almost half of young people have tried cannabis at some point in their lives and I think that it's smoking cannabis, lots of cannabis, over a prolonged period of time does seem to have this effect and there is some some work that's been done in the past that's looked at educational outcomes and it's found that people who smoke lots and lots of cannabis and, and who importantly carry on smoking lots of cannabis can affect how they do at school or at university or in, in their work life and this might tie into that quite well. I think the other thing as well is that there's some evidence that people who smoke lots of cannabis regularly are more likely to get depressed. This is a bit more controversial because it's very difficult to tease out if cannabis is making people depressed or if people who are depressed for example have low mood are more likely to smoke cannabis to try and feel better about it but also we know that this this chemical dopamine um, is is probably involved in depression as well one of the one of the key symptoms of depression is not being able to enjoy things and that's if anything the one that people find the most upsetting is they're not able to enjoy things that they used to enjoy and I think it may it may time with that as well but I think again we need to do need to do more research into into how all these things affect dopamine and how that affects how we feel. 
And those people who have smoked cannabis regularly, if they stopped smoking now, would the brain rebalance itself and retweak itself so that they could feel feelings of joy and reward and motivation later on? Some of the studies that have been done have looked at people who used to smoke cannabis and in those studies they've only found very, very small effects, if any, on the dopamine system. So what we think happens is that after a period of abstinence that the brain gets back to normal again. And so I think if people are worried about the amount of cannabis that they're smoking, if it's having negative effects on them, my advice would be to either stop or at least cut down the amount of cannabis that they're smoking. That was Michael Bloomfield talking to Hannah Critchlow. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Ginny Smith. Also this week, we've seen reports from West Africa of the worst outbreak of the Ebola virus since the disease was first discovered in the 1970s. So far, over 700 people have died in Sierra Leone, Guinea and Liberia. Governments internationally have been holding emergency meetings to discuss the threat. But what exactly is Ebola? Where did it come from and what can we do to stop it? Chris, you're a virologist. So, in fact, we've already had a question in from Twitter. At Chain G wants to know what causes Ebola. Ebola, Ginny, is a virus. Uh, It's what we call a phylovirus. And down a microscope, you see these very thin, they look almost like little straws or tent pegs because they often bend over and tangle themselves up or sometimes even wire themselves up into a sort of figure of eight shape. And they're about 80 nanometers, so 80 millionths of a millimeter across and up to about a thousandth of a millimeter long. And when they spread, which they do via body fluids of an infected case, or sometimes even via the air, possibly. It's interesting because we've had a tweet here from uh, Colin Purrington, who says, why do healthcare workers cover their noses with a mask if Ebola is not airborne? Do they think it's potentially airborne? Yes, we do. And if a person has Ebola, then any part of their body is infectious. And when they're injured or a needle goes into them to take a sample or when they give fluids or if they're sick or they have diarrhoea, all of these body fluids are infectious and can go up into the air and a person can get those particles landing on their eyes or in their mouth and it can infect them. What makes Ebola so deadly? Why are so many people dying from it? Well, it's not a human infection and it's naturally an infection of fruit bats. And we've found this since 2005 when a scientist called Eric Leroy did a big trapping exercise in Africa and went and trapped all the animals that he could around areas where there were outbreaks of Ebola actually affecting great apes because it's not just humans who succumb. And they found that when they tested the bats that they caught for antibodies to Ebola and also the genetic material of Ebola, they were positive for both, proving that they were both infected and carrying the Ebola virus, which is what you would expect of a carrier. And so it looks like it's bats passing it into other animals and then into people or even directly into people. And then you get an outbreak in humans. So does that mean it's not quite as deadly for the bats? Yes, and that's why it's nasty for people, because the virus has evolved to live in a bat. And it's not very good if you kill your host too quickly, because you can't pass yourself on to others. You want to maintain a state where your host is infectious and carrying you, but not killing you. But a bat's immune system and a bat's body is very different to a human. We're both mammals, but we're quite distinct from each other. And the virus has evolved to outwit the immune system of the bat. But when it gets into a human, it's a massive case of overkill. And the virus goes into actually our immune system itself. It attacks cells called dendritic cells, grows in those, but at the same time triggers the release of huge amounts of immune signaling chemicals that drive the immune system 
absolutely haywire and at the same time cause lots of our first line of defence, our lymphocytes, which are the white blood cells that fight off infection, it drives them to commit suicide. And so you end up with a very, very poorly functioning immune system and the release of lots of inflammatory chemicals that cause your body to go into a sort of shock. So it's almost turning our own bodies against themselves. Are there any treatments for it? At the moment, no. And this is the big problem. The only thing we can offer people is supportive therapy. That means that basically you prop up their failing organs using whatever means you can, making sure people have enough fluids, making sure they have calories going into them, making sure their blood pressure stays up, and also dealing with the coagulation problem because the shock state that people go into means that they consume all of their own clotting factors. And as a result, there's a high risk of bleeding. And one of the characteristics of late-phase Ebola is people bleed from from every orifice pretty much even their tears can be full of blood so making sure that doesn't happen by supportive management is the mainstay and ultimately would hope we can get a vaccine that was going to be my next question i've heard talks of a vaccine are we far away from that There have been experiments done and scientists in a number of countries, including in the States, have done various studies where they have taken the outer coat of Ebola. They've inserted the gene for that into another harmless virus, an adenovirus that normally causes the common cold. The idea being that you could infect someone with that, that when the common cold virus was multiplying, it would also show the immune system what Ebola looks like and you would therefore safely make antibodies against Ebola. So if you did then catch Ebola, you'd have antibodies that could defend you and protect you. And how far is that away from being able to actually help people? Well, it hasn't really been a research priority because until now, Ebola hasn't been a big threat to countries that have the money or the will to want to make a vaccine. This latest outbreak is the largest we've ever seen in the four decades since Ebola was first discovered in 1976. And the fact that now more than 700 people have died, we've got more than 1,200 cases, and it's, it's affecting people who are going into airports and potentially within striking distance of Western countries, suddenly the minds of Western countries have been focused and it's been made a research priority now to try to develop a vaccine that might work. And how likely do you think it is that it might spread and affect say us here in the UK? Well, I think at the moment the risk is really small, luckily. I don't think we have to to worry straight away. But the fact is that there are millions of aeroplane flights happening and people travelling via aeroplanes all the time. And as a result, you've got very rapid transit between countries and the incubation period of Ebola can be up to three weeks. So it's perfectly feasible for someone to leave a country incubating but not symptomatic with Ebola, arrive in another country and then go about their business becoming infectious and potentially infecting people um, before we actually know what they've got and therefore we could get an outbreak and that's why governments have been meeting to discuss various strategies to stop it if that does happen. Scary stuff. Thanks Chris. This is The Naked Scientist with me, Ginny Smith and with Chris Smith. Now driverless cars will be trialled on the roads of the UK by January 2015. The Ministry of Transport has invited cities from around Britain to compete to host one of the three trials they're going to hold but is the technology up to it? Here is your quick-fire science on driverless cars with the two Hannahs, Hannah Critchlow and Hannah Tooley. Since cars were first invented, they've slowly been becoming more and more automated. Anti-lock braking and cruise control are now common in most vehicles. Cars which automatically maintain a safe distance from the car in front, and even which can park themselves, are now for sale. However, it is likely that completely autonomous vehicles are still a way away. Driverless cars can use varying combinations of lasers, sonar, radar and infrared sensors to scan the road ahead and around them. 
Combined with cameras to detect road markings and signs and GPS to navigate, this allows them to build up a picture of the world they're travelling through. Google's autonomous car, for example, uses 64 rotating laser beams called LIDAR, taking more than a million measurements per second to form a 3D model that's accurate to the centimetre. In the future, it's likely that cars will be able to communicate with each other. This means the car could have an advanced warning of vehicles ahead braking or changing lane, making it much easier and safer for them to plan their manoeuvres. One of these systems is currently being tested in Detroit. Better communication will also allow driverless cars to form road trains following each other. This will reduce accidents and traffic jams, increasing the capacity of the roads. The aerodynamic effect will also help to improve fuel efficiency by up to 30%. The National Highway Traffic Safety Administration estimates that more than 90% of road crashes involve human error, so it's likely that driverless cars will actually be safer than current vehicles. One of the biggest barriers in bringing autonomous vehicles to market is price. The LIDAR on the roof of Google's cars currently cost around $75,000. However, they hope to have it down to a more affordable price by 2018. Legal issues are also contentious as many driving laws will need to be rewritten. If an autonomous car does crash, it isn't clear who would be responsible, so this makes insurance more complicated. Hannah Critchlow and Hannah Tooley. And you can get hold of all our Quickfire Science episodes as their own podcasts from our website at thenakedscientist.com slash quickfirescience. You're listening to The Naked Scientist, Chris Smith and Ginny Smith with you. Psychiatrists know that fears and specific phobias, like being scared of spiders or needles, tend to run in families. And now, thanks to a new study, we know that smell might be playing a part in the process. Jacek Dambietz at the University of New York made female rats frightened of the smell of peppermint and found that if they experience their fear in the presence of their young, they can pass on their aversion and they do it by releasing a fear pheromone. As a psychiatrist, I often see children of anxious parents that are anxious. So I wanted to understand how this anxiety, how this fear is passed from parents to to children. And for that reason, we trained female rats to be scared of a smell. In our experiment, we use a peppermint smell. So when the female rats were sniffing the smell, we gave them very mild electric shocks to produce fearful responses in these rats. Then we match them with males, and when they get pregnant and deliver their babies, we re-expose them to the smell in the presence of their newborn pups. And we observed that the pups later expressed fear and avoidance of the smell. And it was dependent on the mother expressing fear to the smell in their presence. How do you know that the mother was actually frightened of the smell? So rodents that are usually very, very mobile, they move a lot, but when they are scared, they freeze, they don't move. And when you then tested the pups, was that in the same way? You just presented this smell to them and then you saw them freezing as well? Well, we did um, actually two, uh, two behavioral tests. One was exposure to, um, to the smell. And indeed, we observed that exposure to the smell caused them to freeze. And another test we did, it's a maze that has a shape of the letter Y, two arms. In one arm, 
we place the smell that was triggering maternal fear, and in the other arm, we had a neutral smell. And what we observed that the pups, they were avoiding the arm with the smell that was causing mother to be scared. So how do you think that the pups are picking up on their mother's fear and then learning to be frightened of the same thing that she is? The pups, like six, seven days old pups, cannot see and cannot hear. So we hypothesized the pups learn about maternal fear through smells. And in one experiment, we isolated the pups from the mothers and uh, we scared the mother. And at the same time, through the tubing, we pumped the air from the mother to the pups. And that was enough for the pups to learn about maternal fear. We then look at the activity of the brain and we found that the sites that process smells were activated and also another important site of the brain that is known to be involved in detecting danger, the amygdala, was also activated. So putting all this together, some kind of smell is given out by a frightened mother. It goes to her offspring and the presence of that scared smell plus whatever the smell is that she's experiencing at the same time, tells these youngsters to themselves establish the same fear circuitry in the brain that the mother's got, so they're frightened of the same thing in future. Correct. But at the moment you don't know what the chemical is that's triggering this infectious fear response. We don't know, but we have some hints. In earlier studies, researchers isolated so-called alarm pheromone, so a substance that mice or rat produces when it's facing any threat. Other mice or rats pick it up. We looked at the structures in the pup's brain that process alarm pheromones, and uh, we found that these structures were activated. Do you think this fear transmission effect can also happen in humans? I do think, I believe, and I, I am almost convinced that it does, because we have, uh, we have clinical studies um, showing that children of parents who, for example, have a dental phobia, so have the fear of dentist, that these children uh, will likely develop this fear of a dentist too. And there are also other phobias that are transmitted from uh, parents. In this case, I say parents because that's and their emotions matter too. Now the question is how these fears are transmitted. We know from human studies that babies are very sensitive to, to the emotions that mom expresses. One of the like, well-known phenomena is so-called social referencing. With the infant is with the mom or with the dad and a stranger approaches, if the mom, let's say, is smiling, is happy, then the baby will welcome the stranger. But if the mom is upset, then the baby may be upset, unhappy. So we know that uh, the babies really respond to emotional communication. Fascinating. So there might actually be a grain of truth in the claim that you can smell another person's fear. That was Jacek Dambietz at the University of New York. Now, I don't know about you, Chris, but I'm a big fan of rock music, so I'm very familiar with the sound of the electric guitar because it's dominated popular music for decades. But what you might be less familiar with is the techniques that some lead guitarists use to get the expressive voice-like sounds from their instruments. They do this by subtly bending and vibrating the strings with their fingers as they play. It's the difference between a tune sounding like this... (laughs) 
and this. Amateur guitarist and professional physicist at Oxford University, Dr David Robert Grimes, wanted to know more about what's going on scientifically when guitarists make these sounds. Kat Arney was all ears. Any guitarist who, who, who plays has these intuitive techniques they use. Now, one of the reasons the guitar is interesting, I think, to most guitarists, is the amount of expression you can get with it. When you're playing something like a piano where, where pitch is quite discreet, you'll go between notes and you'll hit a C or a C sharp, and that's, provided the piano is tuned correctly, they're the notes you'll hear. Um, when a human voice, for example, sings, we hit a note, but we shake around it. We, we put a natural vibrato on, which we can't control, and that makes it quite nice to listen to. On a guitar, your pitch in a similar way, is not discreet. You can actually bend up in the microtones between notes and you can explore that and it gives it a human vocal quality to the guitar. You have to manipulate the strings to get this. And I think that's the motivation that I started with. I said, oh, I want to see what's happening from a physics perspective when I do this and why I get this pitch out. So how did you go about trying to understand what's going on here? The mathematics and physics of stretch strings have been known since antiquity. And I think any um, A-level or if you're an Ireland Leaving Cert student will know the, the equation the, for a stretch string, which is related to its length and its tension and its, its, its linear density. So I started with that and said, OK, say what happens if I'm bending a string, I'm radially displacing it from the fretboard. And I said, if we do a force diagram of that and we work out what's happening and what tension forces are being added and let's see what the net result is. It started as an incremental step by step, starting from a stretch string and then applying forces to it to see what you what the net effect would be. So that would be like a guitarist kind of bending a string up on a fret as they're playing a note. Absolutely. And seeing what what happens to it pitch wise when you when you resolve all the vectors and you add all the tension forces together, what are you left with? And what impact does that have on pitch? So what can this model, this mathematics that you've worked out, what can it actually tell us about playing the guitar? I think it was the mathematician G.H. Hardy who made a comment that he was delighted that none of his work would ever be useful. And sometimes I think uh, a description like that might apply to some of my hobby work. But what it can do, I suppose, that would potentially be useful is there is an abundance of different string types uh, available to a player. And if they want to pick a string, for example, that doesn't bend much, they might look at, they, they may, and they may do this intuitively, but if they wanted to quantify it, they might look at the equations and say, yeah, I need a string that's uh, relatively stiff and, and ideally has a large area and that will stop from bending when I don't want it to. Conversely, if they want to do big Eric Clapton style bends, they might go for the exact opposite and they can quantify what the best material is based on these equations if they so desire. There's an increasing number of computer programs that are mimicking different instruments and different sounds. Do you think your mathematics could be useful for those? In theory, yes. I play keyboards as well when I'm unfortunately roped into it in different bands I play in. And one of the things, if you're simulating instruments, you'll notice, and I think most guitarists will notice, that when you put the guitar simulator on, it sounds diabolical. It's, it's not even passable. And I think a lot of that is due to the fact that it doesn't factor in the mechanics of human touch on that, how we explore around the string. So if someone was into digital instrument modeling and they wanted to, say, factor in things like bending in a more natural way, or even guitarist vibrato, which I cover in the paper as well, in a more natural way, they could certainly use those equations for that. And finally, who's your favourite lead guitarist? That is a, a question I wrestle with every day. I, I see I'm into very non-cool genres of music. I probably would say John Petrucci from Dream Theatre is my 
favorite guitarists, but then I have other guys like Brian May, who I've loved since I was a kid, Steve Vai, Joe Satriani. To pick one of them, it just it'd be like choosing between children. I just can't do it. David Robert Grimes, who was talking to Kat Arney. Who's your favourite guitarist, Ginny? Um, I'm I'm a big Red Hot Chili Peppers fan, so I, I really like the guitar work in that. Or um, my parents used to play a lot of Eagles, and there's some great guitar solos in the Eagles, so probably one of those guys. You didn't pick the Gilmores or the Townshends. I was a bit surprised. You're not, not a Who or a Pink Floyd fan? Um, no, not so much. Kind of passed me by. This is The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and also with Ginny Smith. On to our main topic now, and how scientists are using one of the brightest lights in the universe to probe the fabric of the world around us. Now that light source, which is called diamond, is a synchrotron, which is a form of particle accelerator. It uses a very powerful magnetic field to propel a stream of negative particles called electrons in a long circular path at very close to the speed of light. As the electrons follow the curve of the half a kilometre long path, they give off beams for X-rays 10,000 times brighter than the sun. And scientists are able to tap them off and use them to study the structure of crystals or jet engine parts, and even to read ancient manuscripts. Greg Jackson went to Diamond in Oxfordshire's beautiful countryside to see how it works. My name's Ed Ryle. I work here as an insertion device physicist, so I make some of the special magnets here that make Diamond especially bright. Diamond is a series of particle accelerators that accelerate electrons up to pretty much the speed of light and basically use the light like a giant microscope to really see the very small details of matter. And how is Diamond different from CERN? So CERN is a giant machine in the Swiss Alps and they accelerate particles called protons and they smash those together at massive energies to really look at the fundamental secrets of matter and what was going on in the early stages of the universe. And at Diamond, we accelerate electrons and we put them into our storage ring and we accelerate them at speed of light and then we don't want them to smash into anything because we want to use the radiation they emit when they go through a magnet. So in terms of technology, we're very similar, but in terms of outputs, we're looking at very different science. We're currently in the storage chamber here and I can see multiple magnets of all different colours and sizes and cooling equipment and so many different wires. But this is only one facet of the whole of Diamond. Perhaps you can talk me through the very beginning of what happened and how we end up here in the storage room. The electrons start their life at the centre of the facility. So you look down at Diamond from the sky, you look at this giant spaceship donut and inside of the donut you have a short line and then a small donut and then the large donut. The electron starts at the beginning of the short line in the electron gun. They're fired from a heated cathode and they're then travelling at about walking pace. Electrons then travel through a copper tube and this is the linear accelerator. It takes the electrons from the initial 90 kilo electron volts up to 100 mega electron volts, which is already 99.99% the speed of light. Once we're at our operating energy, we head out into the main storage ring of which we're sat in now, in fact. We're just up as looking around a curved tunnel to where the electrons actually enter the main storage ring. They then travel round the 560 metres circumference. They then travel in our vacuum vessel, and that vessel is threaded through all of our electromagnets in the main storage ring. The magnets themselves are kind of big blocks of steel, and that creates just a straight magnetic field that then bends the bunch of electrons and keeps them on the orbit in our ring. It's a little bit like a swing ball set. Once a turn, the swing ball comes round, you hit it with your bat, and the electrons regain the energy that they've lost as they've gone around the storage ring. And as they get bent, they emit very hard X-ray radiation and also light down into the infrared. 
Uh, that light, uh, the infrared, the visible, the X-rays, then are sent down through beam lines into experimental stations where scientists do a variety of studies um, on crystals and other materials to find out their structure. What happens in the beam lines? There's a lot of techniques used here. A lot of beam lines here use crystallography, so they select their energy of X-rays, they'll fire them through a small, tiny crystal, and they'll get a pattern of spots, which they can then use to determine the actual structure of the protein or the molecule they're looking at. So really, diamond is like a giant microscope that enables you to see molecular levels of a material. So whilst a regular microscope that you might get in a lab, you can only see cells, you can see at a much higher fidelity atoms and the placements of atoms within a material. That would be broadly it. It's very broad brushstroke, and there's an awful lot of computing and an awful lot of science that goes into trying to determine all of these things. You know, we really are standing on the shoulders of, of many generations of scientists here. Physicist Ed Ryle speaking with Greer Jackson at the Diamond Synchrotron. Now, every single year, hordes of researchers visit Diamond that we were just hearing about to use their facility for their research, and it's helping to discover new drugs, as we'll hear a bit later, and, as we're going to hear now, improve the performance of jet engines. Lewis Owen is at the University of Cambridge and is with us. Hi, Lewis. Hi. So, um, how does a jet engine actually work, putting it bluntly? So most of you will have seen a jet engine on the side of a plane when you're taking a holiday or whatever, and you'll notice at the front that there's a a huge fan blade which effectively sucks air through the machinery, and it goes through a series of compressors and chambers where it's mixed with the fuel that the plane runs off and creates small timed explosions. And at the back of the engine, you've got another series of blades which are spinning at extremely fast speeds incredibly high temperatures and under extreme amounts of force. So we need metals that can withstand these extreme temperatures and pressure conditions. And when you say extreme temperatures, how extreme? On the order of sort of fifteen to 1,600 degrees. It is very often hotter than the, the metal hel- uh, melts at. It's almost the equivalent of putting an ice cube in an oven and trying to keep it as a solid, even when you crank up the temperature of the oven, which, as most people know, is almost impossible. Why don't we just run the engine a little bit cooler so that they don't melt? Well, in fact, this engine, like most engines, works on the the transference of heat energy into motion. And in fact, what you find is that the hotter you can run this at, the more efficient the engine is. But in order to do that, we need alloys or materials that can withstand increasingly harsh conditions and we don't have those at the moment yes at the moment we don't we use a a family of alloys called super alloys because their product their properties uh, allow them to operate under such extreme conditions but we're constantly looking for new ways of designing these alloys in order to create the physical properties that we want and how are you doing that? So one of the ways we do it is by using the diamond light source in order to probe and understand exactly how the structure of these alloys works. In fact, most metals and alloys are a type of crystal uh, built, if you can imagine, from a series of Lego bricks, effectively, that are all stacked on top of each other. But these bricks can often be of very slightly different sizes and are affected differently by the forces that they're put under in the engine. So we need to understand how those atoms sit and how they move under these forces. The spacings between these atoms is a billionth of a metre apart. So there's no sort of standard optical way that we can just look at these simply. So we have to use uh, this extremely intense radiation in order to do it. And this effect called diffraction, which if you can imagine, if you've ever seen waves going in or out of a harbour, 
are, when a wave reaches a small gap, those waves then spread out. So much like in the harbour, the water waves spread out in these beautiful rings, we do exactly the same thing at Diamond, but instead of a harbour wall, you're looking at the gaps between these atoms and you're using X-rays rather than a water wave in order to look at those. Because, of course, the X-rays are really small and you, you need to get between the gaps in the atoms, which are really small. Exactly. Now, you've brought along something to show us. I've brought along uh, just a very simple little demonstration. So um, what I've got is uh, an ordinary laser pointer and uh, I've borrowed uh, very kindly from Ginny uh, one of her hairs, in fact. So if I just shine the laser pointer at the hair, you can see that the laser point on the wall produces tiny little spots on either side in a little line. Yes, I can, so I can see a nice big green central dot and then lots of little dots to either side of it. So what is producing those little dots and why are they there? The light is hitting the hair and spreads out on either side. And then the light from one side meets the light from the other side. It either adds together, like if you're adding two water waves, you'll get a much bigger water wave, or they subtract from each other. And so you get patches where you see no light. So you get this alternating pattern. We're probably about a metre and a half away from the wall, and the spots are about a centimetre apart or so, I'd say. And you can work out exactly what the size of the object you're looking at is from that distance. In fact, you can do a a simple back-of-the-envelope calculation and work out that a human hair is about 100 microns across. I've got uh, two other things here that we can play with, which are a CD and a DVD. A CD is obviously made up of a series of concentric tracks going round. And if you shine the light off a CD, as I can do that... Just you, watch my eyes here. You I've can got see... Oh, yes. <laughs> oh, <laughs> OK, so what I've got, we've got a spot appearing on the wall and then to either side of that spot, about a metre away on the wall... Um, we've got vertical lines appearing in green laser light. So what's going on? So this is the light diffracting and producing what we call an interference pattern uh, from the individual tracks of a CD. Right, and And because the hair is much bigger than the gaps between the tracks on the CD, the hair produced gaps or or spots of light that were very close together, but these ones are much further apart because the track is smaller. Exactly. So as you said, Chris, they're now about a metre apart. Now, if you then do the same thing on a bouncing the light off a DVD, we can see that, in fact... That one's out the door. It's it's, it's going out of the studio. It's it's probably two metres, actually, away, that line. And this is simply because the tracks on a DVD are spaced so much closer together, which obviously means that you can therefore store more information on a DVD. And extrapolating this to diamond and your alloys, we can actually say, well, with very tiny waves of X-rays, you can get into the gaps between atoms and actually work out what the structure of the alloys are. Exactly. And you can imagine that if we're putting uh, an alloy under a force, either compressing it by pushing it together or pulling it apart, we can imagine that those planes of atoms are going to move towards each other or away from each other, and therefore we can work out how the, the stresses affect the alloy. Brilliant. Lewis Owen from the University of Cambridge. Now, scientists haven't just been studying the materials that make up today's world. Fossil detectives Phil Manning and Roy Wigelius have been looking at specimens that are over 50 million years old. Incredibly, the original chemicals that were in the tissues when they were alive are still there. And using the diamond synchrotron, it's been possible to detect them and learn about more than just the shape of the Earth's earliest inhabitants. Greer Jackson went to the Manchester Museum to meet some of them. Just behind me here at the Mansion Museum, you see this wonderful mounted skeleton of Gorgosaurus. 
one of the ancestors of Tyrannosaurus rex. And she's quite spectacular. She's maybe two or three metres high, would you say? And she's towering over everyone who enters. What's so special about her? She really had a tough life. And it's very easy when you start looking at the front of the jaw to see this horrible bony infection here. And you go back, we've got this huge tumorous growth on her shoulder blade as well. And you go to her right leg, she's got a compound fracture where so much so the small bone of the lower leg is poking out through the skin envelope. She was a mess. And you think, what is the reason behind this? And it was only when they started prepping away at the brain case, someone spotted little bony struts which shouldn't be there. Where there should be brain tissue, there were little pieces of bone. And it's a very important part of the brain these bony struts were occupying. It was the cerebellum. This is the motor control centre for this animal. What would have caused this bony growth? Well, that's the $64,000 question. What is fascinating with some of these tumours is they are prevalent in rapidly growing youngsters. What do we have here? We have a sub-adult predatory dinosaur that's showing rapidity and growth. And as a result of that, we've got a potential tumour which is very, very similar to what we see in mammals today. But if it's cancer or not, that's when we have to start looking at other possible signals and that's where we have to start picking apart the actual chemistry of this fossil and fortunately we have access to the diamond light source and with it we can pick apart the dilute traces of original chemistry to that animal within your body within my body a fraction of one percent of our bodies is made up of these crucial trace metals that mediate enzymatic reactions and build the proteins that make you you and me me If we can measure those astoundingly dilute concentrations, we can literally look at the recipe of life itself. Whilst the recipe of life is a tempting prospect, Gorgosaurus is yet to go under the microscope. So how do we know that these trace ingredients still exist? Well, Professor Roy Wagalius from the University of Manchester has already put a fossil to the test. Roy showed me a specimen taken especially out of the lab from its protective tinfoil case just for this report. What I've brought down for you to have a look at is a 50 million year old leaf. And when you say 50 million years, is that before the comet crashed into the earth and killed all the dinosaurs or is this after? This is after the extinction of the dinosaurs. It's remarkable. It's really beautiful as well. Such an amazing specimen. The preservation is absolutely amazing. It's a little bit smaller than my hand. And you can see very, very clearly that it's a fossil leaf. It looks an awful lot like a maple leaf or a sycamore leaf. The edge of the leaf isn't even or flat. It's got little teeth on it. There's another thing that's really interesting about this. If you have a look at this leaf, you can see there's these little patterns that form on it. In fact, it almost spells out C-S-I. And part of the leaf tissue is missing. You can see that the leaf has been kind of skeletonized. That means that um, just the veins are left behind. These little things that I said kind of spelled out the letter CSI. If we focus in, they're actually the leftover of insect poo. So this is a life process of 50 million-year-old insects that's left inside this fossil leaf. Most people would think that this was just carbonized remains. There is no chemistry left behind. But in fact, that's not the case. Copper that's in this leaf 
It's still organic, just the way that the copper is bound inside your hair while I'm standing here talking to you. But in the case of humans, that's a pigment-coordinated copper. Here, this is copper coordinated to some chemistry inside the leaf. And in fact, the copper that we detect is still bonded exactly the same way in this fossil leaf that it's bonded in the leaves of that tree right outside the window. So where exactly did you find the metal in the leaf? Was it all over or was it more concentrated in certain areas? What's really interesting is that the metals concentrate themselves along the serration tips. We think that that's either the metals being put there as a reservoir, so that as the leaf grows, there's a little bit of material, there are some nutrients, so it can grow larger. Or it might actually have to do with armoring the tips of the leaves against insect predation. This all sounds absolutely fascinating, but I couldn't help but wonder what this meant in today's world. Do trace metals really matter? I put this question to Phil, back with Gorgosaurus. It's like a recipe in a cake. If you slice up the cake, you can look at it and say, yes, we've got cake. Once you start analysing the chemistry of that cake, you can see the different ingredients which have gone into that baking process to what you finally form. Here, we can pull apart the chemistry of the healing. And we can look at the various ingredients involved at the different stages of healing. Does that mean by looking at the bones of dinosaurs, there might be a potential future in how we might better heal ourselves? This animal sits perfectly between two organisms we know very well. One birds and the other crocodiles and alligators. If they get a whole leg bitten off in a swamp, they can survive such massive trauma. Birds, on the other hand, have this elevated metabolism. They've got the rapidity of healing. A bird, if it has an injury, it does tend to heal very quickly. Here we've got an animal in the dinosaurs which is slap bang between this rapidity and healing and this remarkable immune system. And when you look at an animal like this gorgosaur, she seems to display a suite of trauma, but she seems to have the elevated rates to aid and abet the recovery process, but also an amazing immune response which has permitted her to heal structures that would kill you and I. So if we can look to animals like this and their descendants and ancestors we might come up with a recipe for aiding and abetting the healing process in groups such as our own, the mammals. Philip Manning and Roy Wigalius from the University of Manchester. You're listening to The Naked Scientist with Chris Smith and me, Ginny Smith. The World Health Organisation estimates that antibiotics add an average of 20 years to all of our lives, but since the discovery of penicillin in 1928, overuse of these drugs has led bacteria to evolve resistance, meaning certain superbugs like MRSA and tuberculosis are becoming untreatable. Scientists are trying to solve this problem by learning more about the structure of bugs themselves in the hopes of finding a new chink in the armour that we can use to attack them. Dr Neil Patterson works at Diamond and he's discovered a potential new class of antibiotic. So Neil, how is your approach different to traditional antibiotics? The main difference with the target we've discovered is that it's located on the very outer surface of the bacterial cell. So hopefully any new drugs that target this won't have to cross the cell membrane and enter the cell. Therefore, they're not subject to detoxification by proteins inside the organism or the efflux pumping, which is one of the major mechanisms for bacterial resistance. So when you say detoxification, what are the bacteria actually doing when they evolve resistance? The main aim of the bacteria is to keep the, the level of drug below a lethal concentration. They can achieve that either by binding the drug uh, and preventing it getting to its target protein, or they could bind the drug and change its chemical structure, or they could pump it back out. Bacteria have to deal with toxic compounds in their environment on a regular basis, and they have these, these pumps that 
pick up a wide range of compounds that the cell doesn't want to have inside and they pump it straight back out and that just prevents the concentration reaching a lethal level. So how does your target solve those problems and avoid being caught up by those mechanisms? The protein we've solved the structure of, it's a pore. So if you imagine a a tube a bit like a, a piece of toilet roll and it sits within the surface of the cell with an opening at either end. This protein complex performs the final step in assembling the outer surface of bacteria. It transports a large molecule through the pore in the centre and then inserts it into the outer side of the outer membrane. So if you prevent that from working, then the bacteria kind of can't build its coat? It can't build its coat and it can't survive. How has diamond helped you in discovering that protein? Proteins are very small. So the the protein we've solved the structure of is approximately one hundred thousandth of a millimetre. What diamond gives us is it gives us very intense X-rays, which are of the the sort of wavelength we need to be able to visualise something that small. One of the main problems we have, of course, is that biological material and X-rays don't really work well together. You get a lot of radiation damage. And because of that, we have to encourage the protein to form a crystal so that we can spread that damage out across many copies of the protein. And when you say a crystal, what exactly do you mean? I mean, I'm thinking of of a grain of salt here. Is that kind of what it looks like? Uh, It looks very similar, actually. All crystals are essentially a, a repeating subunit. So you have lots of copies of a certain thing all arranged in the same manner and then built together like, I guess, like Lego blocks. So are there any drugs being developed using this new method? Yes, a a group in Switzerland have discovered that if they modify a naturally occurring antimicrobial agent called Protegrin, that molecule is used by mammalian cells to kill bacteria. It looks a bit like a hairpin and it inserts into the outer membrane and when it reaches a certain concentration, um, it forms a pore and spills the cell contents. What they found is if you modify that, it no longer forms a pore, but it's still lethal. And they discovered that it binds to the pore part of the complex we've solved the structure of. And they've got a compound in phase two clinical trials that's active against Pseudomonas aeruginosa, uh, an opportunistic lung infection. So what we've provided now is a structure of the target, and hopefully we can use that to understand how their drug works and how to allow it to be effective against other bacteria. So if this is an entirely new class of antibiotics, does that mean we can stop worrying about antibiotic-resistant bacteria? Oh, definitely not. Bacteria, in, in common with the other microorganisms, have been engaged in chemical warfare for millions of years. You look at the penicillins, and they they were originally from a mould that um, used them to kill bacteria that were competing for its nutrients. What a new class would buy us is a good few decades probably of safety. If we're smart with the with the use of those compounds, we might be able to extend that further. Thanks, Neil. Dr. Neil Patterson from Diamond. And now finally closing this week's programme, Hannah Critchlow has a scorcher of a question of the week. Hello, I'm Hannah Critchlow and welcome to Question of the Week from the Naked Scientists. This week, we tackled the burning issue of spontaneous human combustion, since Donald wrote in with this. A weird occurrence was reported in Soweto, which took place about two weeks ago, where a young man of about 20 years suddenly started burning. He was nowhere near a fire, heater, stove or anything of that sort, but he literally caught fire, and he is now in hospital for secondary burns. This got me thinking, 
There's been quite a few cases of people spontaneously combusting. Is there any scientific explanation for this? So, is it possible for humans to spontaneously burst into flames? And if so, how? Well, bacteria in the human gut naturally produce phosphane gas, methane and hydrogen. Phosphane gas, also known as PH3, so phosphate attached to three hydrogens, could feasibly spontaneously convert to diphosphane, P2H4. If this happens, it could ignite the methane and hydrogen fuels in the gut and send an explosion igniting in our abdomen, providing high temperatures for the burning of the fat on our skin and the clothes on our back. Surely then, this could make spontaneous human combustion a possibility. Over to Dr John Emsley, chemist and author. He's contributed his considerable spark to the scientific feasibility of such combustion in nature. Spontaneous combustion is seen as a possible explanation for will-o'-the-wisp, those flickering lights that can be seen over marshes at night when something appears to ignite methane as it bubbles to the surface. So the explosive combination of phosphane gas, diphosphane, methane and hydrogen are emitted by the marsh bacteria that live there eating the decomposing material. These mix causing spontaneous combustion and a scientific explanation for the marsh folklore of small goblin-like fairies mischievously leading travellers off the beaten path at night using lights that look to be shelter. So, back to microbes living in the human gut. Could phosphane gas mix with the hydrogen there to form diphosphane and thereby ignite the methane? If so, surely this could explain any reported cases of spontaneous human combustion. Back to John. But it seems highly unlikely. Why is that? Well, because getting two phosphorus atoms to bond together in diphosphorine requires a lot of energy and there didn't see much point in microbes producing this. So, due to energy requirements, spontaneous human combustion, at least via this chemical pathway, looks to be out of the question. Thanks, John Emsley, for setting us straight. We next turn our attention to this. Hi, I'm Neil Briscoe from Gloucester. I find that I can't work with music playing as all my attention is on the music and it distracts me. On the other hand, I have friends who can't work unless they have music at loud volume blasting through their skulls via their headphones. Why does this difference exist? Music, a concentration aid or a complete distraction. Why do some people find it helpful and others disruptive? What do you think? You can post on our Naked Scientist Facebook page. You can tweet at Naked Scientists. You can email studio at thenakedscientists.com or... You can join in the debate on our forum, which is at nakedscientists.com slash forum. Hannah Critchlow. Well, we have unfortunately run out of time. Thank you to our contributors, Ed Rahl, Lewis Owen, Philip Manning, Roy Wigalius and Neil Patterson. Thank you very much to Georgia Mills and Greg Jackson for their help on production and Ginny Smith for joining me. We're back next week with a look at neuro foods. These are the things that you eat, but why? What do they do to your brain? Food for thought, indeed. And if you have any questions on that, send them in to chris at thenakedscientist.com. The Naked Scientist is supported by the Wellcome Trust, the STFC and the EPSRC. My name is Chris Smith. You're on RN, and thank you very much for listening. Goodbye. Thinking about your next career move in research and development? Then it's time to make your move to the UK. The nation that's investing £20 billion in R&D over the next two years. 
the nation that's home to four of the world's top research universities. The nation where great talent comes together. Visit gov.uk forward slash great talent to see how you can work, live and move to the UK.